We're going to continue in our series this morning. Yeah, thank you. In uh, Matthew chapter 11, looking at verses 1 to 19. Listen to this passage of Scripture as I read it for us. After Jesus had finished instructing his twelve disciples, he went on from there to teach and preach in the towns of Galilee. When John heard in prison what Christ was doing, he sent his disciples to ask him, Are you the one who was to come, or should we expect someone else? And Jesus replied, Go back and report to John what you hear and see. The blind receive sight, the lame walk. Those who have leprosy are cured, the deaf hear. The dead are raised, and the good news is preached to the poor. Blessed is the man who does not fall away on account of me. As John's disciples were leaving, Jesus began to speak to the crowd about John. What did you go out into the desert to see? A reed swayed by the wind? If not, what did you go out to see? A man dressed in fine clothes? No, those who wear fine clothes are in king's palaces. Then what did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet. This is the one about whom it is written, I will send my messenger ahead of you, who will prepare your way before you. I tell you the truth, among those born of women there has not risen anyone greater than John the Baptist. Yet he who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has been forcefully advancing, and forceful men lay hold of it. For all the prophets and the law prophesied until John, and if you are willing to accept it, he is the Elijah who was to come. He who has ears, let him hear. To what can I compare this generation? They are like children sitting in the marketplaces and calling out to others, We played the flute for you, and you did not dance. We sang a dirge, and you did not mourn. For John came neither eating nor drinking, and they say, He has a demon. The Son of Man came eating and drinking, and they say, He is a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. But wisdom is proved right by her actions. Let's pray. Father, as we look at your word this morning, we thank you again for your Holy Spirit who opens our eyes to see the truth, to see how it applies to us today. And I pray that you would guide us, both that you would guide me in what I say this morning, as well as all of us who hear what it is you want to teach us today. Father, help us to listen and to put it into practice. Amen. I've entitled today's message, What Do We Do With Our Doubts? What Do We Do With Our Doubts? In Mark chapter 9, there's a story of a father who comes to Jesus out of desperation. And he comes because he has a son who has been afflicted by epileptic seizures for many years. And he comes to Jesus and he says to him, If you can, if you can do anything, would you have pity on us and help us? And Jesus replied to him and said, If you can... All things are possible to those who believe. And the man replied with these now familiar words, Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. Do you ever feel like that? 
when you pray and bring your requests before the Lord, and maybe it's an area that you are struggling with, or you've been praying for many years and waiting upon, do you ever feel in yourself a mixture of belief and unbelief? When you're praying about work or praying for a job and no job has come. When you're praying for your marriage and things haven't changed like you would like. When you're praying for a child of yours who maybe has drifted away from the faith or maybe is running with friends that are not really a good influence for them. Do you sometimes struggle and wonder, God, how long will it be? When will the answer come? It is normal for us to deal with doubts from time to time or questions that we may have in our life. Everybody's a little bit different on that, on, on how that happens. Ruth Tucker has written an interesting book called Walking Away from the Faith that deals with some of the more extreme examples of people that have just given up on their faith and moved away from it. But she asks the question in her book, where is the line that divides religious belief from unbelief? Where is that line? And she answers the question by saying, I'm not sure. All of us in our faith fall somewhere between absolute certainty on one hand and total skepticism on the other hand. You know, and there's a vast, vast spectrum in between. And there are believers, and maybe you are one of them, who has been blessed where you really have a rock-solid faith. And you came to know Christ, and He did a work in your life, and you, you just don't struggle with doubt. I'm grateful that I am more on that side. And I really don't. The more I I dig into the Scriptures, the more I have seen God's truth, it's not been a struggle for me on that side. But I know believers who have questions and things that keep coming up in their life and they, they struggle with those things. They're committed to Christ. They want to grow in their relationship with Him. But they're just wired that way more. Maybe more introspective or more questions come. There are also unbelievers. that There, there can be uh, skeptics who are absolutely convinced there is no God and they're just settled in that, you know, and there are skeptors, skeptics excuse me, who, you know, who wonder at times when they look at the order in the universe and they think, maybe there really is a God. Or this universe shows a little bit too much evidence of design to believe that it all happened by chance. But where is the line when someone crosses over from unbelief to belief? Where is that? God knows. God knows the attitude and the commitment of our heart. We're going to talk about that this morning. And what I want us to think about is, you know, the fact that at some point in our life, we may all have questions and doubts, or maybe you're dealing with a child who's uh, has questions for you or a young adult who's struggling with some of those things. The problem isn't having questions. The issue is what do we do with them? What do we do with our doubts? And that's what we're going to talk about this morning. And when I look at this passage, I think it is a very good one to give us direction. What do we do with our doubts? Well, first of all, we bring them to Jesus. We bring them to Jesus. Look at verses 1 to 3 again. Here's the setting. After Jesus had finished instructing his 12 disciples, remember he sent them out to preach and to go to the villages of Israel, then he himself went on to teach and preach in the towns of Galilee. Now when John heard in prison what Christ was doing, 
he sent his disciples to ask him, Are you the one who was to come, or should we expect someone else? Now, when we think about John the Baptist asking this question, I mean, that, that's surprising at the least, and it's even a little bit shocking that John the Baptist would ask this question. I mean, isn't he the one who earlier we read about had pointed so assuredly to Jesus as the Lamb of God, the one who would take away the sins of the world? He had preached about this one who is greater than I, whose ministry must increase and mine must decrease. And so here he had pointed so strongly to Jesus. And now he asks asks this question which reflects some doubt. Why would John the Baptist ask this question? Well, here are some possible reasons. Uh, Number one, John was in prison. He had been put in prison by Herod because of his preaching against Herod's adulterous marriage. And the traditional site where we believe that John was held was a fortress of Macarus east of the Dead Sea where he had been kept for some time. Almost a year he had been in prison. John may have been emotionally drained. I mean, we don't know. That's one of the suggestions, that he was just emotionally drained. Just like Elijah the prophet in the Old Testament had this dramatic encounter with the prophets of Baal on Mount Carmel, you know, and he had seen God answer prayer. The fire from heaven had fallen. He had seen God do a great miracle. And then in the next chapter, you see Elijah distraught, feeling like he's all alone in Israel and there's nobody else who's following the Lord. And he's about ready to, you know, to turn in his prophet's badge and give it up. We can be emotionally, physically, mentally weary, and that affects our spiritual health. But I think more than all of that, what was troubling John was that Jesus was not living up to John's expectations. Where was the wrath of God? Where was the judgment? You see... John had believed and he had even preached that when the Messiah came, he was going to clean things up. You know, he was going to take care of the problems. John had preached that when the Messiah came, his winnowing fork would be in his hand and he would gather up the wheat and he would burn up the chaff. He would overthrow the Romans, if you will. He would clean up the religious hypocrisy in the temple. He would toss out those religious leaders that were not walking or honoring God. And John's looking at Jesus' ministry and he's thinking, where's the judgment? I mean, what I see seems to be more grace, more invitation, more preaching to those who are hurting, more compassion for the sick. And it's not that that's wrong, but where's the other side of it? Was I mistaken? And so he asked this question, Are you the one who was to come, or should we look for someone else? There are many reasons why people have questions or doubts about their faith. Sometimes it's simple curiosity. It can be the question of a child who asks, Mom or Dad, where did God come from? You know, where where did he start? Where did he come from? In later years, those questions can grow into how do we know that God is real? How do we know that he exists? 
Sometimes as students are in school, they face the challenge of science and the questions that it may be raising in their mind and they wonder how do all of these things fit together. When they hear the Bible's account of creation, they hear in a science class teaching about evolution, they wonder can these things fit together or how do you reconcile that? And there are answers. There are answers to questions that we have, but it doesn't answer everything. I can remember as a kid having questions about the dinosaurs, you know. I was fascinated by dinosaurs. Well, where do they fit into Scripture and how does all of this work together? There are reasons to believe and there are answers to questions that we have if we will take the time to look. Sometimes people have disappointments with God or have been hurt by other Christians. And like John, they may struggle when God didn't quite live up to their expectations. God, I I thought you were going to do it this way, or I thought if I gave my life to Christ that this would happen and I wouldn't have these struggles. Or God, I never expected this to happen in my life, whether it's a health concern or a relationship issue or whatever it may be. There can be disappointments. But most of all, there are many people who struggle with the problem of pain and suffering. How can a loving God allow so much pain and suffering in our world? And there are many different Christians who have come up with theodicies to try and answer that question. But some of it, some of it, if you've ever studied the book of Job, you know that God doesn't fully answer that question. And it comes down to a matter of faith. Will you trust me, God says. Will you trust me that I know what I'm doing, even if you can't fully understand all of it? And to John's credit, he took his question to Jesus, and so should we. John himself could not go there directly. He was in prison, so he sent his followers on this more than a hundred mile journey on foot through the desert up along the Jordan River to Galilee to find Jesus and to ask his question. I commend his perseverance. I wish the people who have questions today would take that same sense of diligence and seeking out the answers and coming to Jesus because, you know, If you have questions, you're not going to find the answer from a skeptical professor. Or you're not going to find it by reading a book by an author who's an atheist. You need to go to Jesus and ask the questions that you have. And what does Jesus say? Well, in verses 4 to 6, he invites us to look at the evidence. Look at the evidence. Listen to my teaching. Look at my actions. Jesus replied and said, Go back and report to John what you hear and see. The blind receive sight. The lame walk. Those who have leprosy are cured. The deaf hear. The dead are raised. And the good news is preached to the poor. Blessed is the man who does not fall away on account of me. You know, when you think about the response of the crowds, and Matthew has reported this too, that when Jesus began to preach and teach like the Sermon on the Mount, the people were amazed. Nobody had ever taught like Jesus with such authority, such power in his words, such wisdom. When they saw the miracles that he had done, the miracles that he recounts here, I mean, no one had ever done these kind of miracles. And Jesus says, take a look at that. Listen to me. Think about it. 
What do you hear and see? And when Jesus referred to these particular miracles, he was really referring to statements in Scripture. He was taking John's disciples to several different Scripture passages that are found in the book of Isaiah. These statements are prophecies from the Old Testament concerning the Messiah and what he would do. And you can put that up next where he lists them there in Isaiah, excuse me, go back to Isaiah 26, 19, chapter 29, 18, chapter 42, two verses, chapter 35 and 61 also. There's a list of passages that you can identify with this passage. And what's interesting about all of those passages in Isaiah is that they all speak of judgment in their context, but that's not what Jesus focused on. He cuts the passage off. For example, we're going to look at the next one in Isaiah 61, verses 1 and 2. Let me read it for you. Jesus quoted this verse at the beginning of his ministry when he stood up in the synagogue and he took the scroll of Isaiah and he read from Isaiah 61, verses 1 and 2. And he said, The Spirit of the Sovereign Lord is on me because the Lord has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom for the captives and release from darkness for the prisoners, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And then he stopped. And he said, Today this passage is fulfilled in your hearing. He stopped right there. The very next part of that verse is, to proclaim the day of vengeance of our God and to comfort all who mourn. If you look at that in each of those other contexts, you're going to see too that Jesus cuts off the judgment part. Why is that? Did Jesus not think that applied? Is he just kind of picking part of the verse and leaving the other part off? Or why would he do that? I think the best answer is because there are two comings of Jesus. In Jesus' first coming to earth, He came to bring salvation. He came to die for our sins and deal with the basic problem of man that separates us from God. That's our sin. And He would live this perfectly sinless life. He would fulfill all the requirements of the law. He would represent us and die in our place paying a penalty that we deserved on the cross. And he would rise again. But when he comes this next time, he will come to bring judgment. He will come to put an end to the rebellion and the hardness of men's hearts who have rebelled against God. That day of reckoning and judgment is coming. And I think Jesus separated those two because today we do live in an age of grace. Today is the day of salvation. Now is the opportunity to come and know Christ and give our life to Him because that day is coming when it will be too late. Jesus invites all of us, if we have questions, to look at the evidence. And looking at the evidence has brought many people to faith. A couple weeks ago, I went to visit one of the older members of our church. And I had an enjoyable visit with him. I can only wish that when I am 94 years old, if the Lord lets me live that long, that I will be as mentally sharp as this individual. 
one of the books that he was reading, which was interesting, he was reading the book Ben-Hur. Now, wouldn't that be a great thing to be 94 and reading Ben-Hur? I mean, that that's just great. And he shared with me some things about the story that were sticking out to him. And if you're not familiar with that book, it was written by an author named Lou Wallace, who about a century ago was the governor of New Mexico. And he had started out to write a book against Jesus Christ, and in the process, he was converted. And he told a friend how it happened. He had been an agnostic, and he had denied Christianity for all of his life up until that point. He was good friends with another famous agnostic, Robert Ingersoll. And one day, Robert suggested to him, he said, See here, Wallace, you are a learned man and a thinker. Why don't you gather material and write a book to prove the falsity concerning Jesus Christ? That no such man has ever lived, much less been the author of the teachings found in the New Testament. Such a book would make you famous. It would be a masterpiece and a way of putting an end to the foolishness about the so-called Christ. And he thought about it and he liked the idea and he determined that that was what he was going to do. And so for the next six years of his life, he began to do the research both here and overseas as he gathered material, and he started to write this book denying the reality of Jesus Christ. He shared with his wife early on his plan. She was a member of the Methodist Church, and she did not like his plan. And she began to pray along with other friends of hers. And in the course of doing his research. He said, I had written nearly four chapters when it became clear to me that Jesus Christ was just as real a personality as Socrates or Plato or Caesar. And that conviction became a certainty. And I thought candidly, you know, if he was a real person, then could he not also be the Son of God and Savior of the world? And gradually that consciousness grew until he came to that point where he fell on his knees and he prayed for the first time in his life and he asked God to reveal himself to him. And he asked God to forgive him of his sins and to help him become a follower of Jesus Christ. And he said, Toward morning the light broke into my soul. I went into my bedroom. I woke my wife. And I told her that I had received Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior. He stopped writing that book and instead he turned to a new work which would be Ben-Hur. It was a masterpiece and it was the crowning glory of his life's work. It's interesting what God will do, isn't it? When people come to the scriptures or look at the evidence and come with an open mind willing to hear from God. That's what Jesus invites all of us to do. And look again at how in this passage, listen to Jesus' endorsement of John the Baptist. What did he say about John the Baptist in verses 7 through 15? He said, what did you go out into the desert to hear? Were you looking for a reed, you know, someone who's blowing in the wind and who's kind of vacillating in his opinions? That wasn't John, was it? John was solid. John was fiery in his preaching and teaching. Did you go out there to see a man dressed in fine clothes? No, John wasn't like that, was he? His dress was pretty simple. It was the dress of one who called for repentance. 
He was not the kind of person you would find in a palace. Did you go out to see a prophet? Yes. Yes, you did. The first in more than 400 years. Remember the end of the Old Testament, Malachi, until the time of Christ, over 400 years pass where there is silence. And here comes John. He was more than a prophet, Jesus said. He was the one that Malachi prophesied about when he said, I will send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way before you. He was the Elijah that Malachi wrote about. And if you believe that he was the forerunner, then you must believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah that he spoke about. And then Jesus in verse 11 makes this remarkable statement when he says, I tell you the truth. I tell you the truth. Listen up. This is important. Among those born of women, there has not risen anyone greater than John the Baptist. And all the people who heard him could say amen to that. He was a powerful man. But why? Why was he the most important? Why would he be greater than Abraham or Moses or Isaiah or Jeremiah or one of the other prophets? It is because of where he stood in the line of salvation history. John was the last of the Old Testament prophets. John stood at the apex of the Old Testament because he had that incredible privilege that he could point to Jesus as the Messiah and say, this is the one. This is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And yet Jesus says something to them and to you and me that is remarkable. He says, yet he who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. Why would he say that? It's because John died before seeing the death and resurrection and ascension of Jesus Christ. But every New Testament believer, all of us who live on that side of the cross, stand on a different plane. And it's not because one is better than John at all. It is just that we can point more clearly to Jesus even than what John could. And we can say of Jesus... He is the Messiah. He is the Savior of the world who died and rose again on our behalf. It's a remarkable statement. Do you understand what a great privilege we have to tell others about Jesus Christ? There is no greater privilege than to be able to tell someone who Jesus is and what He has done for us. Jesus makes a statement here too in verses 12 to 14 about the kingdom. And from the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has been forcefully advancing. The kingdom came in power and it continues to grow in power. And he says that forceful men lay hold of it. I think this is one of those difficult passages to translate. And you'll find different versions taking it a slightly different way. And I think the best translation really is to say the kingdom of heaven is forcefully advancing. That is true. But the other side is that violent men oppose it. Violent men oppose it. And what Jesus was saying to John is, John, don't be surprised that you are in prison when violent men oppose you or me. The kingdom will advance. It has power. But there will be battles all along the way. And there will be violent men who stand in opposition. 
He had warned his disciples about that in the previous chapter, and now I believe he was also saying that to John. John, don't let that discourage you or think the kingdom has not come. It will advance, and it will conquer all. And then finally, Jesus says, listen to the warning. Listen to the warning. I believe that Jesus is a warning that was true then and that also applies to us today. It's found in verses 16 to 19. What was that generation like that Jesus ministered to? He said, they are like children who play a game and are calling to other children to come and join them. And sometimes children, Jesus could use them as an example of faith and trust like in their parents. And he could take a small child and he could say, you know, unless you become like children, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. But in this passage, he's saying sometimes children can be just childish in their behavior. And sadly, that's what this generation was like. They were invited to come and believe, but they didn't like either Jesus or John the Baptist. And if you looked at kind of how they treated it when he says this this statement, we played the flute for you and you did not dance, we sang a dirge and you did not mourn. If you think about it, John the Baptist, in their minds, was like the funeral. He was like the dirge. He was all serious. I mean, he called for people to fast and to repent of their sin and to turn to Christ. He didn't drink alcohol. And he was no fun. And they said, he has a demon. I mean, this man, you know, he's nuts. He's out there and we don't want to be like him. And of Jesus, they took the opposite tack. Jesus was like a wedding. He was like a dance. And he was not holy enough to many of them. He eats and drinks. He fellowships with tax collectors and sinners. And they said he's a glutton and a drunkard. They didn't like either one. You couldn't please them. But Jesus says, but wisdom is proved right by her actions. God's wisdom will be vindicated in the life of John the Baptist and of Jesus. And God's wisdom will be vindicated in the life of all of his children that trust in him. It's a call to listen to the warning. And don't reject Jesus because somehow he didn't fit your preconceived expectations. But come to the Scriptures. Come with your doubts. Come with your questions. And see who Jesus really is. Come with an open mind. What do we do with our doubts? You know, it's interesting to me in looking at the ministry of Billy Graham that he even had to deal with this early on in his life. When Billy Graham started out in the early, in the, excuse me, mid-1940s, he worked with an organization called Youth for Christ, and that was in the days when it was starting. And there were two men that were kind of influential as speakers and leaders early on. One of those was a man named Chuck Templeton, and the other was Billy Graham. And these guys were gifted speakers. There was a rally that was taking place in Chicago in 1945 where these men were the two who were going to speak. And if you had heard them that night, you might have thought that Chuck Templeton was actually the more gifted speaker at that time. Chuck was a pastor in Toronto, Canada. And Billy Graham was a young evangelist just starting out in his ministry. They both felt God's call, but their lives would take very different courses. Chuck Templeton in his life struggled with doubt in his ministry. 
And those doubts eventually overcame him. He would walk away from his ministry and he would walk away from the faith. It's one of the stories that Ruth Tucker tells about in her book, Walking Away from the Faith. Billy Graham also had questions, but he did something very different with it. It came to a head several years later when Chuck Templeton and Billy, who were friends, met. And in the course of the conversation, Chuck said to Billy, Billy, it's simply not possible any longer to believe, for instance, the biblical account of creation. The world wasn't created over a period of days a few thousand years ago. It has evolved over millions of years. It's not a matter of speculation. It's demonstrable fact. And Billy said, I don't accept that. And there are reputable scholars who don't. Who are these scholars, I said? Men in conservative Christian colleges? He said, yes, there are. But that's not the point. I believe the Genesis account of creation because it's in the Bible. And I've discovered something in my ministry. When I take the Bible literally, when I proclaim it as the Word of God, my preaching has power. When I stand on the platform and I say, God says, or the Bible says, the Holy Spirit uses me and there are results. Wiser men than you and I have been arguing questions like this for centuries, and I don't have the time or the intellect to examine all sides of every theological dispute. So I've decided once and for all to stop questioning and accept the Bible as God's Word. But Billy, I protested, you can't do that. You don't dare stop thinking about the most important question in life. Do it and you begin to die. It's intellectual suicide. I don't know about anyone else, Billy said, but I've decided that that's the path for me. Where did Billy Graham do that in his ministry? It was 1949 when he was out in California at Camp Forest Springs. And he went for a walk. This was prior to the 1949 Crusades in Los Angeles that would be the beginning of really his ministry as an evangelist when the world would come to know who he was. And he went for a walk with the Lord and he shared his feelings and the things that he was wrestling with and his doubts. And he came and he knelt before the Lord and he said, God, I can't answer all the questions that I have. But I've come to that point where I know enough to trust you and to believe that your word is true and I surrender all of my doubts, all of my questions, I lay it at your feet. And I will take your word as truth by faith. You know, that's the point that all of us really, really need to come to. Because God doesn't answer all of the questions that we have. And isn't it just a little bit arrogant on our part to think that in our finite human mind that if you took that brain out weighs about three pounds and you could hold it in your hands that somehow our finite mind could answer all the questions of an infinite universe God is bigger than us and his ways are not our ways and there are questions that we may have in different areas of our life but he's given us enough to know that His Word is true. And what Billy experienced, he said, when I chose by faith to believe in the authority of God's Word, I saw its power to change lives. And I saw its power to change me.
Maybe that's why Billy Graham at his crusades would always end with the hymn, Just As I Am. We're, we are familiar with the verses, Just as I am, without one plea, but that thy blood was shed for me. But the third verse says this, Just as I am, though tossed about, with many a conflict, many a doubt, fightings and fears within, without, O Lamb of God, I come, I come. What do we do with our doubts? We bring them to Jesus. We look at the evidence. There are reasons to believe. We look at His life and teaching and we see that no one ever taught like Jesus and no one ever did the miracles He did. And we leave our questions with Him. Let's pray. Father, I don't know where the people are at who are listening to me today. Many have come to faith and are just solid in their confidence in You, but some who are here this morning may have questions or doubts in their mind. And Lord, I pray that You would help them to settle that. That by faith in Your Word, in the promises that You have given, that they would come to believe and to leave those questions with You. I pray for those who may listen to this message on a CD or maybe as it's given to friends or family members, Father, that you too would just speak. And I would invite those of you who are listening to keep an open mind to come to the Scriptures and ask Jesus, Jesus, if you are who you claim to be, would you show yourself to me? He will do that. He will work in your life and He will bring to you the conviction that you need. Jesus, thank You for that. In Your name we pray. Amen.